I am Joseph Sacron, and you are listening to East Storycast, history of trauma and emergency surgery, told by the people who were there. Dr. Brent Eastman is a general, vascular, and trauma surgeon from Evanston, Wyoming. At the time, Evanston was so rural that he was actually born in a nearby hospital in Ogden, Utah. Parents were homesteading ranchers and lost a great deal of everything during the Depression, and so they had to move into town. His father worked three jobs to raise his family during the Depression and became a locomotive engineer for the Union Pacific Railroad. Dr. Eastman was inspired to go into medicine after becoming critically ill at the age of eight years old and was hospitalized and cared for by surgeons in Ogden, Utah, where they saved his life. While no one in his family had gone to college before, they were highly educated and intelligent individuals that provided him with the support to pursue his dream of becoming a surgeon. After completing medical school and surgical training at UCSF, he traveled with his wife to La Jolla, San Diego, where he began his career at Scripps Hospital. He eventually became corporate senior vice president and chief medical officer and held the Ann Paul Whittier Chair of Trauma at Scripps and was a clinical professor of surgery and trauma at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Eastman is an active member of many leading organizations and served as the president of the American College of Surgeons from 2012 to 2013. Dr. Eastman delivered the nationally renowned trauma lecture, the Scudder Oration on Trauma, during the 2009 annual American College of Surgeons Clinical Congress titled, Wherever the Dart Lands, Toward the Ideal Trauma System. Dr. Eastman was a co-founder of the San Diego County Trauma System, which subsequently became a model for the nation and trauma care. Over the course of his distinguished career, Dr. Eastman has authored or co-authored numerous trauma-related articles and publications. He was a member of the Institute of Medicine Committee that in 2006 published the landmark report, The Future of Emergency Care in the United States Health System. Dr. Eastman, thank you for joining us today on East StoryCast. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. So I, I was hoping that maybe we could, you know, start just talking a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in trauma and really what drove you into the field. Good. Well, uh, in our preparatory discussions, you mentioned my Scudder oration, and I happened to be discussing it in the committee meeting this morning with my dear friend and colleague, L.D. Britt, who's giving the Scudder oration this year. And uh, L.D. told me that his Scudder oration on Tuesday is going to be a sequel to mine, which I thought was a great compliment. But, and I would reference that, and I did bring a copy if, uh, if you don't have one. Uh, because to give the Scudder oration, I was the chairman of the Committee on Trauma from 1990 to 1994. And so I was intimately aware and involved with that committee. But to be asked to give the Scudder oration, the named lecture at the Clinical Congress, 
uh, which I did in uh, 2010, I guess. Uh, I really summed up much of what you're asking in this question. How did you get involved? I grew up in rural Wyoming, and uh, it was actually a train wreck that I described in my Scudder oration that was my introduction to trauma, and that may sound a little far-fetched. My father was an engineer on the Union Pacific Railroad and ran the big steam engines. And when I was uh, 11 years old, I guess 1951, there was a horrendous train wreck outside of Evanston where a passenger train, the city of San Francisco, which had left San Francisco, and the city of Los Angeles, which had left Los Angeles, were both headed east to Chicago. And just outside of my hometown, during the worst blizzard of the winter in November of that year, the city of San Francisco crashed into the rear end of the city of Los Angeles. And there were many casualties and many, many injured people. But as I did the research on that train wreck, I realized that many of the passengers on the city of San Francisco had just been to the Clinical Congress of the American College of Surgeons in San Francisco and were headed home east Chicago and beyond. And my father took me to the wreckage outside of, because it was just outside of town, and the engineer on the city of San Francisco was our neighbor and close family friend and was killed in that crash. But what I remember as a 11-year-old boy standing with my father, looking at the wreckage, the surgeons who had survived had crawled out of the wreckage and were taking care of in other injured passengers. They were uh, dissembling orange, wooden orange crates, making splints, and that caused me to wonder what the Scudder oration had been that year in San Francisco. And uh, Rollo Hanlon, who was past president of the college and director of the college, was very helpful, and he found the program for the Clinical Congress that year, and it turned out that the Scudder Oration had been given by Sir Reginald Watson Jones, a famous British orthopedic surgeon, on the treatment of fractures. So I can only assume that some of those surgeons in the wreckage had heard that lecture. And here they were in the snow and cold outside of my hometown, putting splints and taking care of these injured patients. And it may seem a bit far-fetched, but I think it was that day that I said, I would like to be a trauma surgeon someday. Wow, that's, <laughs> that is an amazing story. And you know, just to think, experiences we have in life really kind of you know, shape how we think and kind of impact us as we move forward. And, you know, in a different way, I think my own personal experience right. with, you know, traumatic events and injury kind of also helped shape and form my thought process. So it's kind of neat to talk to other people. And I feel like a lot of us within, uh, you know, the discipline of caring for the injured patient have some of these um, experiences that happen early on in life. and. Wow, that's a really tremendous, uh, tremendous story. Yeah, fortunately, I was one step removed from uh, the trauma as opposed to you, and I remember being very impressed with your story when I first heard it. 
but it certainly influenced my life, sort of beginning at that stage, that I wanted to be a doctor, and more specifically, I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. And then, you know, the sequence of events, the fact that I ended up doing my surgical training in San Francisco in the 60s, uh, and somebody once said, if you remember San Francisco in the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> but my, my, and my favorite rotation was always the San Francisco General Hospital, because we went between the San Francisco General Hospital, the University Hospital up on Parnassus Heights, and the VA Hospital. Right. And I was very fortunate, uh, I'm going to be on a panel this week talking about coaching the younger generation. And in addition to remembering your mentors who shaped your life in your residency, of which we all can think of people, I say remember your peers because, and stay in touch with your peers because they will influence your life going forward. And I actually mentioned that in my Scudder oration because my peers at the San Francisco General under Dr. Blaisdell uh, were uh, surgeons who all went on to have a career in trauma. Don Trunke, George Sheldon, Frank Lewis, just retiring as the uh, director of the American, uh, executive director of the American Board of Surgery. So my life came together in a way that I was in the right place to get the training I wanted to go on and take care of injured patients. Yeah, and you had that inspiration that seems like yeah. You know, throughout your career, it's kind of stayed, stayed with you. And, you know, I think this is a great segue into your Scudder oration because, you know, you called it wherever the dart lands towards the ideal trauma system. And so, you know, it's interesting that now we're, you know, still talking about, well, what is the ideal trauma system? And I'm just curious, you know, having, you know, seen it all, you know, from the 60s till now, you know, where do you think we've come? How far have we come? And where do you think we're going from a regionalization perspective um, and a perspective of really trying to ensure that we're covering the entire population? Because I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of us have noticed is that the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma and those of us that, you know, um, work in this area, there's been a lot of changes over the latter half of the 20th century. And there's been, I think, some tremendous strides to really ensure that we're you know, providing high quality care to a significant portion of the population. But I, I think the reality still is that if you get in your car and you drive from the East Coast to the West Coast, your outcomes are probably dependent upon where you crash. So I'm just curious if you can you know, kind of take us through you know, your thoughts as you put together the Scudder Oration and how that really kind of um, uh, your experience has helped shape how you've approached building that ideal system. Well, I will. Um, first of all, the title, Wherever the Dart Lands, which I was impressed that L.D. Britt today remembered the title of my lecture. And where that came from is that I was on an Institute of Medicine committee uh, a few years ago, looking at the future of emergency care in the United States. And it, was, it was meant to be a very limited study about emergency care, basically about overcrowding and wait times and so on. 
And the committee was almost exclusively emergency physicians. And there were only two trauma surgeons on that committee, Bill Schwab from Pennsylvania and myself. And as time went on, it became a three-book series, one of them exclusively dedicated to pediatric trauma, and then one more about emergency room, and then one more about the systems thing, which I pressed hard to have. And Art Kellerman, a very well-known and very articulate, very bright emergency physician from Atlanta, and I became sort of the spokespersons for this publication of this Institute of, of, of Medicine, or National Academy of Science Institute of Medicine, and we were meant to be, you know, apolitical and nonpartisan. And Art and I testified before Congress, and one of, I remember one day Art, and I don't know if this was original with him, but I always give him credit, and it has to do with what you said, driving across the country. He said, ladies and gentlemen, in trauma, in severe injury, your area code is more significant than your genetic code, where you get hurt. Yeah, very and, telling. And then I was asked by one of the committee members, uh, just what you just said, well, Dr. Eastman, there's all this about a national trauma system, and what do you mean by that? And I had never really been asked that question that specifically. And I thought for a moment, and I said, well, just envision a giant map of the United States on the wall here today in this congressional committee meeting. And I have a dart, and I'm blindfolded. And I throw the dart at the map. Wherever the dart lands, when we have fulfilled our vision of a national trauma system, it won't matter where it lands, you will be assured expeditious transfer to the level of care comm uh, commensurate with your injury. And that, be that kind of became my mantra, that, that you in San Diego, where we are today, it's seven minutes is the average transport uh, the average transport time from injury site of injury to a level one or level two trauma center. Whereas in Wyoming, my home state, in the winter with bad roads and it might be uh, 24 or 48 hour in Alaska, it might be two or three days. But to me, the concept of a trauma system, wherever that dart lands you will be assured, because a system is in place to assure it, expeditious transport to the level of care appropriate with your injury. Now, it may well be the appropriate place is in the small town of Wyoming where you're injured. On the other hand, it may mean in rural Wyoming, the appropriate level of care would be in Denver or Billings or Salt Lake City or someplace like that. Yeah. So that's where and it, it really harkened back to the well-worn phrase that I never uh, hesitate to use in any case about getting the patient to the right place at the right, right patient to the right place at the right time. And I say the right patient because I think we, the pendulum has swung too far in some areas where everybody gets taken to the level one trauma center and they're inundated and resources which would better be used 
to care for the more critically injured are not available. Right. So, so it's yeah. really about appropriate distribution of patients. Well, that's an interesting comment because there's a lot of talk about you know secondary over triage and how that's kind of playing a role from you know a resource perspective within kind of the overall trauma systems. And I think you know you led us into something that is in my mind very timely, which is the most recent uh, IOM uh, report uh, called the National Trauma System: Integrating Military and Civilian trauma systems to achieve zero preventable deaths after injury. And so, you know, with your experience, having been, you know, part of those initial processes, and I know you said Dr. Schwab was with you at the time. I know he was also on this um, uh, committee. I'm curious, what do you think of that report? Do you think that what they've recommended is going to be the solution? And if not, are there things that you would add? Or, you know, just curious as to kind of um, your thoughts uh, on well, how you would approach that report. And how I, um, I did attend the meeting in Chicago at maybe the yeah. first or the second meeting of, of that group yeah. and mostly listened. I, and I was very heartened by what I heard. Of course, a lot of the focus was what we can learn from the military and apply it to the civilian sector and conversely what can what we've learned in the civilian sector pertain and and add to the military and uh, I you asked me at the very beginning of this whether I thought we had achieved uh, the goal that I and many others have sought of having a national trauma system or perhaps more uh, practically speaking an interlocking series of trauma systems and uh, the answer is no, we have not achieved that. And I think a large part of that has to do with funding and our failure to adequately. It's beyond me why we've never been able to put the same importance on uh, injury that has been put on cancer or heart attacks, even though you and I both know that the that the preventable death rate and, and the opportunities in trauma are greater than either one of those combined, particularly under the age of 45 and in our children. So I think that report and that committee are on the right track, and I just hope that the momentum goes forward, and particularly tying in to the military experience and bringing, because I think that's going to be one of the factors that's going to lead to a solution because the military has very strong uh, experience in treatment of trauma. They have strong advocacy. And certainly today, in my experience in testifying before Congress and so on, uh, in fact, I ended my Scudder oration presenting a uh, young, young man that I had taken care of in Landstuhl, Germany, as part of the visiting professor program. And uh, I noticed that some of the congressmen who had actually read my Scudder oration, that was the main thing they wanted to know about. Well, what about the military and how are we doing in, in terms of taking care of wounded warriors and so forth? Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting because, you know, I've had some of the similar thoughts as to why have we not been able to convince not only the, our elected officials, but really the American public that 
injury is a major, you know, burden of disease, a major cause of, you know, death and disability. And I think part of it has to do with, uh, you know, we haven't done a great job from a messaging perspective. And a lot of times it's interesting, you know, when you talk to just regular folks and you ask them, well, what do you think trauma is? And they'll tell you, well, you know, they think of, you know, the, the urban gun violence or, you know, maybe they'll mention, you know, the bad car crash. But a lot of times, you know, they neglect, you know, the elderly parent that fell and all sorts of different factors. And I think that, you know, if we could learn from some of the lessons that has happened within cancer, for example, you know, most people can tell you the rate of breast cancer uh, in women. They've done an excellent job in getting that message out there. Because I think the expectation is, is that if someone gets injured, they expect to get taken care of. But the reality is, is, you know, when we wake up every day, most of us don't expect that we're gonna, you know, go through something like that. And it's kind of fascinating to see, you know, how this trend has taken place and how now I feel like with this new report, we're starting to provide a little bit more focus. Do you think that's gonna have to happen from in order for it to really be effective at the highest level? Meaning, do we need, you know, something within the administration of the president of the United States in order to really kind of spearhead a national trauma system to ensure that we're effectively being able to implement something that is gonna make a difference? Or do you think it should be done at a different level? No, I think it's. I think it's going to have to be done. If we don't do it at the grassroots level, it'll be meaningless. But if we don't have support at the upper level, and one of the controversial parts of our uh, uh, National Academy of Science report was we concluded that we needed a national trauma institute, and went so far as to say perhaps that should be at the NIH. And that really ruffled feathers at the CDC and HRSA and other places mm -hmm. where, where people had done an admirable job of supporting injury and injury control, particularly the CDC over the years. I think it doesn't matter so much where it is, but I think we are going to need an institute at the level of the National Institutes of Health because without funding, when I did my scutteration, I, I surveyed uh, state chairman of the Committee on Trauma. Do you have a trauma system in your state or do you, co do you connect with a nearby state for a trauma mm -hmm. system? And if not, what's the major obstacle? And the overwhelming answer in that kind of unofficial survey, not unofficial, I mean I asked these specific questions, was funding. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right, we have, I mean I think part of the problem, it's you say messaging, and I agree. I think maybe trauma is the wrong word. People seem to understand injury better than they do trauma, and you also, I think you've answered your own question very well. It's that A, people don't, it's not going to happen to me, and when it does, they expect that they're going to get good care, you know, maybe we're the victim of our own success. They go to a trauma center and they're taken care of and they do well. And there isn't that lingering memory of somebody with heart disease or somebody with cancer to become advocates. And therefore, I think we've lost 
the opportunity and must regain the opportunity of what I think uh, can be one of the strongest forces in advocacy, and that is mobilizing our patients. If we think about us as surgeons and as trauma surgeons, and think of all the patients I've taken care of in my career, and that you are and are taken care of in your career, we have never mobilized those people as a, as a uh, force multiplier, as they mm -hmm. say in the military. We've never mobilized them to speak up about what it means. I think we're doing better. We're trying to get there. The College of Surgeons is trying to get there. And uh, I think we're far from having achieved it. And I think, unfortunately, one of the ways you have to measure it is in funding. Because if we don't have support for trauma centers, and which we know, you know, uh, to me it's the most admirable thing in medicine, the triage, I, point that, I pointed that out every chance I got to the congressional committees. Where else in medicine, it doesn't matter who you are, you come to the door, you're taken care of. Mm -hmm. That isn't true cancer, it isn't true of heart disease, but it is true of trauma. And I think that model has to be emulated uh, in other areas, and it already is, at least in San Diego. Uh, the whole stroke program is being modeled after trauma. And uh, I, I early on, Dave Hoyt and I, Steve Shackford, felt strongly that we should include ruptured aneurysms, along with gunshot wounds of the abdomen and so on, as being okay for the paramedics to, to activate the trauma system for a ruptured aneurysm. So, yeah, to mobilize the forces. Huh? To mobil yeah. That's interesting. You know, you're talking about the military. And as we were talking about a little bit earlier, I just came from this um, civilian-military collaboration between uh, Strategic Operations and the American College of Surgeons, where we were teaching stop the bleed in a hyper-realistic situation. And you know, I'm always impressed by how much uh, we have to learn from the military. Uh, just a tremendous uh, group of individuals uh, that I think really have, when we look at trauma in general, um, we've really learned a lot over the years and gained a tremendous number of principles, unfortunately, from uh, the experience that uh, our men and women have had. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, with this report talking about integration of civilian and military folks when they're back home domestically, um, it seems like a bi-directional relationship. Uh, what what do you think are some of the barriers to making that actually happen? I know currently in the United States, there's a number of centers that are uh, that have these type of relationships. Um, but it seems like, a, to me, a no-brainer. Like, of course, why wouldn't we do it? Uh, what do you think are some of the barriers? And, and well, what's your overall? Maybe to oversimplify, I think the biggest barrier has been just not doing it. And I, I really have to credit... Uh, David Hoyt, who I think is doing a phenomenal job as the executive director of the college, and I was involved in that during my presidency of the college to some degree, recognizing how much we had learned from the military and how much the military during, you know, the military talks about war being interrupted by times of peace, 
and how much the military surgeons had learned in our trauma hospitals. Uh, and so it is bi-directional, and I think it's a continuum, and I think that's the concept we have to say, and research is going to go on, and, you know, Stop the Bleeding is such a, is such a classic example. And I think people, when they hear that the uh, corpsmen are using tourniquets in the field to stop arterial bleeding, I think it has really been one of the major factors that has allowed us to put that into uh, practice in, in this country. The other thing sort of related to the military, and I think it, it's all a continuum of, of care of injured patients, is mass casualty. And I always try to make the point, and maybe this is where we'll get the public support and the hierarchical support that you and I have talked about, you know, at a government level, at a funding level, is uh, mass casualties, whether it's natural disasters or violence. And of course, we've seen that, unfortunately, recently in, in ways that, that seem to be escalating. And I think we really have to do a good job in a, for example, in a shooting like Las Vegas, to talk about the importance of the military-civilian relationship and sharing of principles, because the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, what happened there when I talked to my trauma surgeon colleagues in Boston, so much of what they did to save lives, we hear about the people who died, of the lives who were saved, had to do with lessons learned on the battlefield. Exactly. You know, when I was in Landstuhl, Germany, uh, General Rubenstein came over, because I brought something from the College of Surgeons, and he came over from Heidelberg to Landstuhl to, to meet with me. And the thing I remember about that, and we've become friends and stayed in touch, he, and I, we were talking about just what you're talking about, about this relationship from this report. And General Rubenstein said, you know, Brent, the quote I have over my desk, this is a general in the United States Army, the quote I have over my desk, and it was from the Mayo Brothers after World War I, was the only victor in war is medicine. And if you think about that, I think that has, I think that's where we've got to go for all this to be, to bring the military in. How are we going to deal with the inevitable mass casualties, whether it's earthquakes or hurricanes, or whether it's uh, shootings, you know, firearm violence, whatever it is, uh, I think our role, and I, I really feel strongly we as the College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma should speak out on these issues. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I think that there is a feeling among uh, those of us, especially the younger generation, are really trying to figure out how do we work at that nexus of medicine, public health and public policy and not, you know, just be siloed off. And I think you're a really good example of that, especially with, you know, some of the experience that you've had having to testify, you know, uh, to Congress, to people that are not necessarily uh, medical uh, backgrounds or, or don't have that type of knowledge. And so, you know, this links in a little bit with the messaging piece that we talked to. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how do you, 
you know, actually prepare for something like that. How do you take your message and kind of put it in a way that's relatable? Um, do you have any advice for, for those of us that are kind of coming up in the field that, you know, maybe haven't done that, but will in the future? Um, and how do you think that has kind of shaped how you view things from a policy? Like, I think you said the two most important words, public health. I think what has been important to me is to realize that we had to frame this as a public health issue because the policymakers uh, seem to understand that language. And Ellen McKenzie, who yes. you obviously know, and I, the, another article I brought that, that really has to do with your, uh, your question is if you have an opportunity to speak out, speak out and know who your audience is. I remember being asked to write this article for health affairs. And I thought, oh my God, health affairs. And of course they admonished me in the request for, to write an article. We do not want a lot of medical jargon. This is not for, just what you've just said, this is not for physicians. So this really required, and I had worked with Ellen on a number of things over the years. We'd gone to India together. And, and so we had, and then Avery Nathan's, yeah. who I'm sure you know. We had to write this thinking this really has to be, it really is your question. How do we write about trauma and trauma systems in a way that will be meaningful to a non-trauma surgeon audience? That's preaching to the choir. And uh, we wrote that, and I was quite happy with that, particularly with having Ellen and, and Avery as, uh, as co-authors. Yeah, what a what a tremendous piece. So, you know, do you do you feel like in your ability to actually go to Congress and testify, do you feel like you connected with those elected officials and you were able to to effectively kind of get across your message? Clearly, I know it's a lot more complicated than what we can cover here in this interview. But I'm just curious as to what what was your own internal kind of sense after, you know, completing those kind of sessions. Do you feel like it actually made an impact? Yes. Uh, I really felt like my uh, metaphor of wherever the dart lands, you know, first of all, if you've ever, have you testified before an congressional, congressional committee, it's a little disconcerting. You prepare for it and you're all ready and you go. And as you start your testimony, half the people get up and leave, and half of them are reading, the newspaper. Are reading the newspaper. But I was so happy that one of the people stayed awake during my presentation and asked me, "What do you really mean by a trauma system?" And whether whether he remembers it or not, I I don't know. But it caused me to to formulate the concept of wherever a dark land. So I think the answer is yes. And I think, I think there is a certain amount of gravitas being doctors and particularly being surgeons and particularly what's, what's going on in the world and today. And I think we have to make sure that we frame our comments in that context. Then it, I think it, then they realize what it is we do every day and every night, that it is the people who in Las Vegas or the marathon in Boston or the church or the school 
or mm -hmm. individual shootings occur and that we are the people who are committed to taking care of that, but we need your help. Right. So, to, you know, you have a, a deep connection with San Diego, and I was wondering if you could, you know, maybe briefly share, how did San Diego achieve the lowest preventable mortality rate in the nation, and why do you think it hasn't happened elsewhere? Are there lessons that we can learn here and apply as a nation kind of globally? I would like to, to think so. I think, first of all, uh, I came to San Diego from San Francisco, and I was heavily, I talked about listening to our peers, and I was heavily influenced to the paper that Don Trunke and John West wrote, where they compared, uh, it was really the first preventable death study, and they were comparing the, the uh, trauma mortality rate in San Francisco versus Orange County, where John West, who was one of my junior residents, had gone. And lo and behold, they found this thing that everybody else has found, of a 20, 22% preventable death rate. And, uh, and they had initiated the concept of doing the uh, autopsy study, you know, so not a, didn't meet all the scientific criteria. So I had Don and John West come down to San Diego when I got here, because I thought, it looks to me like we've got the same kind of issue here. And I had, some very like-minded colleagues. Uh, Dick Virgilio uh, had just come back from Vietnam. Uh, Shackford was mm -hmm. here. And it was really Virgilio and Dave Hoyt and Shackford and I kind of teamed up and started making our presentation because it had to be, I realized it had to be, you say, what are the elements? It really takes a public-private partnership to do this. And in San Diego, the public part of that partnership was the county of San Diego. So we had to convince the county board of supervisors that a trauma thing was a trauma system was a good idea. And early on, the San Diego Hospital Association said, well, we're going to fund a preventable death study. It was the Amherst group who did this study. And I think the unstated thing was just to show that you know, we're really good, we don't need a trauma system. This is why I advocated so strongly on the current uh, uh, college statement on firearm right, violence, yeah. that the last bullet be about research and evidence. Because, so, I said, fine, I think we should do that study just like West and Trunky did. So Amherst did this very good retrospective study looking at preventable deaths in San Diego County. And lo and behold, what they found is that we had a 22% preventable death rate. And I'll never forget, that was what we were armed with going into the Board of Supervisors. And the added piece of information in that report was, it wasn't that we had bad doctors or bad hospitals. I, uh, fortuitously, that 22% preventable death rate was spread across all of our hospitals. And I remember saying to the Board of Supervisors, that's because we don't have a system of care. It, I hadn't come up with wherever the dart lands at that point, but I said, you know, it's just a crapshoot where you end up. It happens to be at a hospital, has a surgeon there, has blood in the blood bank, has an operating room available, you survive, and if they don't, you die. 
And Dick Virgilio, I remember in that same meeting, and I guess what this brings up, you need champions, you need colleagues. And Dick Virgilio was great. He's, he had just come back from Vietnam and was doing very, very uh, good basic science work in shock and fluid resuscitation. And Dick, I think I have it in my, Dick Virgilio said, a soldier shot in a rice paddy in Vietnam has a better chance of survival than a trauma victim in San Diego, California, because there is a system to ensure that they get yeah. the appropriate care. So that was what we, and it wasn't, it took a while, it took us a while to convince them. And uh, one of the, there are five uh, supervisors, and one of them was a friend of mine from a kind of a rural area of San Diego, and I remember running into him one day in the grocery store. And he said, you know, Brent, the thing I think you guys have lost sight of, I've been listening to all these arguments, and I think we need a trauma system in San Diego. But just remember, maybe it comes back to your question about how, what do we do? He said, just remember the most important thing you need three votes. Yeah. And, you know, we, we had gotten so mired in the data and, and yeah. everything that here are five people that are going to decide the fate of it. Yeah. And I remember the last day when it finally came to a vote, and I was hoping to God we had three votes, I had been the sort of spokesperson for why we needed a trauma system with the data and the preventable death rate. And there was one supervisor who was dead set against it, as we've seen throughout the whole political process. Unless his hospital became a trauma center, which it obviously wasn't going to be, although we had a very open RFP process and had an outside group come in and decide mm -hmm. who would be the trauma centers, which I think was part of the secret of the success. The last day of the Board of Supervisors, this particular supervisor, who I won't name, got up and he said, well, uh, Dr. Eastman, I just have one question for you today. We've been debating this issue in these chambers now for two years. Have I taught you anything about politics? And I remember I got up, Virgilio and Shackford, everybody behind <laughs> me saying, oh, shit. And I got up and I said, Mr. Supervisor, I concede you've been able to teach me much more about politics than I've been able to teach you about trauma. And they <laughs> voted, and it was four to one. Wow. And that was... That is impressive. So I think the process was important that it, it went through, it asked the question, do we really need it? Everybody was involved. I think it is absolutely key, and that's what I said at the, uh, the meeting. That, that you're referring to was it's so critical to have all the stakeholders at the table. Whether yeah. you're talking about firearm violence or whether you're talking about trauma, then everybody owns the solution that you're, it may be harder to get there, but everybody comes up with the, everybody owns the solution and will support it. And the other thing, to answer your question, why have we, why has it been sustainable? And I think the one of the answers is that very early on, we decided that we would have a medical audit committee. All of us being surgeons, we'd grown up in the spirit of the morbidity mortality conference. So we started right from day one 
at a time when I'm sure the hospital council would have a heart attack now where we would haul all of our trauma charts from UCSD and Sharp and Mercy, all the trauma centers over to my hospital and review the cases. And it was very cumbersome and it took a long time and it sort of violated all HIPAA stuff. Today, and Dave Hoyt, there's something Dave Hoyt and I really worked on together, we have a trauma registry. So every patient is entered into the trauma registry. And so the, the uh, summary sheet of that registry has all the critical times, how many blood transfusions, how, many, how long from injury, from site of injury to the trauma center, how long to the operating room, was there a return to the operating room. And I think what we've learned, we can just look at that, at that uh, summary sheet and pretty much decide whether a case should be discussed or not. So the way it works today, and it's what started, you know, back in 1984, is I would get all of UCSD's trauma registries. They get all of mine. Somebody else gets all of children's. And independently, we decide, we tell the trauma director at, at UCSD, Raul, this is the, uh, these are the cases I want you to discuss at the Medical Audit Committee. And one of the points I made early on in that, it shouldn't just be the disasters. If somebody's had a great, if you look at this and say, oh my God, you know, they did a pneumonectomy for, for trauma and the patient survived, we ought to hear what they did and how they did it, and it will be a Learn. learning. So if I had to think of one thing that has really been the glue that's, Plus, everybody knows everybody. Everybody sits around the table on a monthly basis. We rotate the chair of that committee. I think Raul Coimbra is, is currently doing a very good job of, of that. And to the, in the spirit of having all the stakeholders at the table, I early on felt it was very important to have the medical examiner there. We, we already had the people from the county EMS, you know, the people who were responsible politically for the trauma system. But I said, we ought to have the uh, medical examiner there, who will be the final word, you know. Dave Hoyt said, Bren, I'd like you to discuss this patient who died, never was operated on. Uh, what was your diagnosis? And so on. And then, and then the medical examiner, we had a 100% autopsy rate at that time, said, well, uh, actually, the patient had two liters of blood in the abdomen, had a ruptured spleen, <laughs> and all of a sudden, no question about it, it's a preventable death. Right. So I think having the coroner or the medical examiner as part of a regular monthly review of all the participants. Yeah. A real multidisciplinary team. Yeah. I think, you know, your comments illustrate that, yes, the data is important, we need the research, because you arm yourself with the facts, you know, that can be critical to kind of change the minds of individuals. But also, it, I think like you said, and like your experience with the council is, is your approach and how you kind of um, go about trying to make your point is critical. And I think what's fascinating is when you look at, you know, those of us that are working in this space, We've, we've started to realize 
how important the data is. And we're still now working on figuring out how do we now translate that. And I think Dr. Hoyt and what he's done with the American College of Surgeons, where they really, I think, I think the classic example is inspiring quality, where they changed the conversation yeah. when they were talking about or talking to elected officials and they made it about patients, about providing them with high quality care and you know, not about reimbursements and all those other things that really you know, don't mean much um, to those individuals. And so we were able to, to take really what's important, I think, and package it in a way that people finally understood what we were trying to say. Yeah, I think it's the data which I, we need, we need the research, we need the evidence to support our position, but there's nothing like a patient story. Mm -hmm. I, I included two patient stories in my yeah. scudder. Yeah. The grizzly bear attack of my friend Johan Otter and, and just to show a trauma system at work because they were yeah. mauled by a grizzly bear. Yeah. And the, the trauma surgeon in Kalispell, Montana called me because Johan said, you gotta call my trauma surgeon in San yeah. Diego. And the guy said, I don't know why I'm calling you. I think I've probably taken care of more grizzly bear attacks in Kalispell, Montana than you have in San Diego, California. But what we decided, he and I decided together that day, that Jenna, the daughter's injuries were such, she had the whole side of her face ripped open and somehow missed the facial nerve, I don't know how. And then she had multiple other bites and things, but it looked like she could be cared for appropriately in Kalispell. On the other hand, I called Ron Mayer and I said, and Jerry Jerkovich, and I said, uh, we've got to get this. Johan has had a 60% abulsion of his scalp, he's got a cervical spine fracture, he's got multiple broken ribs, and the surgeon in Kalispell said he is the most severely injured survivor of a grizzly bear attack I've ever seen. And so we transported him by, they, they arranged it all, and they transported him to uh, Harborview. And Ron Mayer and I were talking about it last night. And for them, it was, they'd seen all these injuries before, and they had a, a neurosurgeon, you know, dealing with his, with his cervical spine fractures, and plastic surgeon to do a latissimus flap to cover his head and so on and so forth. And that story turned out happily. Johan has now moved up the ladder, administrative ladder, and running major departments in the script system here. And, and Jenna, who was a dance major, went on and went to medical school. And she's just graduated from medical school. and, and I think is going into something like emergency medicine. So wow. I've got a picture of her standing on the front steps of uh, uh, Columbia. She went to Columbia to medical school. Wow. And I thought, what a wonderful, you know, and these are the kind of stories, you yeah. know, how do you convey the message? You know, yeah. yeah, I think you need both. You need the data to show yeah. you're, you're not bullshitting. You've got the, yeah. you've got the data. It's yeah. statistically significant, but you can't do better than an yeah, individual people. story, yeah, exactly. a person, yeah. like you. Well, you know, before we end, I just wanted to um, kind of ask you one final question. And I think this is something that uh, a lot of us kind of look to people like yourself who've had so much experience uh, 
um, and have done so well, you know, throughout their career of really kind of being dedicated to, you know, taking care of patients. What, what advice would you have to the early career surgeon, um, not only just kind of in general, but also specifically maybe for those that are interested in trauma system development? You know, how, how do you kind of tackle some of those, you know, big picture items that almost seem like it's almost very difficult to, to figure out even where to start? Can you maybe provide some? Well, it, it may sound uh, self-serving in terms of the college, which I believe in, but I think it is to get involved in the American College of Surgeons. You know, whether it's the Committee on Trauma, that's the way I got started, is Committee on Trauma in San Diego at the local level, and because trauma was my interest, I kind of, my whole career was, was really uh, built around my involvement through the American College of Surgeons mm -hmm. in trauma. So I think that would be the best advice I could give a young man or woman interested. Find the committee, and now, particularly under Dave Coit's leadership, it is so diffuse, and, you know, with Peggy Knudsen's work, with the military, you know, a whole section of the college now designed to work in concert with the military. So I don't think you can do better than to get involved with the college, and there's a lot of interest in young surgeons. Uh, there's the Young Fellows Association. Uh, and I guess that would be, I guess it would be to get involved. I, one of my favorite quotes was, is a you know Chinese proverb of, uh, tell me and I will forget, show me and I may remember, involve me and I will understand. And I think the College of Surgeons provides a way for young surgeons to get involved because there's a lot of interest in young surgeons to get on committees. I mean, the committee I was at this morning is, is on disparity. And Eddie Cornwall, you know, Eddie, he, he, it's something I wished I would have addressed more on my scudder. He talked about the fact that as much as we pride ourselves on trauma systems and getting the right patient to the right place at the right time, the studies that have been done, I think some of them out of your own institution, have shown either, even at the trauma center, there is a disparity in outcome between the insured and the uninsured. And, mm -hmm. I, and I remember reading that at the time and thinking, how the hell can that happen? We're, we're you know, we're blind to, to that. We just take care of everybody the same. But I guess there are biases and Things. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember one of the first studies that was done actually not in trauma patients. Um, I think it was at a cardiology conference where they took uh, individuals and they essentially separated them out. All had the same symptoms and signs and everything, but different ethnicities and races. And they found that, you know, those that, you know, came from the minority population actually got you know, um, offered, uh, you know, different treatments. Yeah. And those that weren't were more likely to be offered things like bypasses and so forth. And so these implicit biases, I think, that exist we, that we sometimes don't even realize. So I think that's a... Really and I, I think that the college is evolving. I, I think it, it hasn't always been that way, but I think it's evolving with such a broad base now, here's a committee 
that I happen to be serving on, that L.D. Brett is chairing, on uh, disparity. And if that happens to be your interest in trauma, as it is, you know, with Eddie Cornwall, that's exactly, he's going to be a, that's going to be a place where he can really have his voice heard and be supported at the college yeah. level. So. Well, I, yeah, I think the American College of Surgeons, I mean, clearly, you know, I've been involved for a long time, and uh, so I feel like I, what they've been able to do for a young person like myself, being able to show me, like, okay, here's how we can get things done together in a collaborative way, and at such a large level has been tremendous even early on. And I think trying to, like, figure out what that niche is, and for each of us, it's a little bit different, and then really kind of, you know, putting both feet in and, you know, being willing to put in, you know, the blood, sweat, uh, equity that it's going to take um, to not only advance yourself from a skill set perspective, but to also start to make some of those uh, changes. You no, know, I, I is, think that's uh, a great question, and I probably, there's probably a better answer than mine, but what can people do? But, you know, I think the other thing, I somebody that was assuming a fairly major role in the college a couple of years ago, a leadership role, and they asked my advice about what's your best advice about what I should do. <laughs> what I said was, which seemed so simplistic that, it, that it, I almost hesitated to say it, but I said, you're going to be faced with endless difficult decisions in the operating room, in the boardroom, in the congressional committee, and as long as you stop and think what is best for the patient you'll never you'll never be wrong i'm, I'm on a panel uh, on tuesday about something you alluded to earlier about experience and the title of my talk is experience uh can it be passed along is it is it is it important and can it be passed along yeah and i start with a quote from Will Rogers, which I'm sure you're aware of, you've probably heard, uh, which is, good judgment comes from experience, yeah. and most of that comes from bad judgment. Right. And so I said that I think that, that experience does count, and if experience can be shared, and you know, some of that bad judgment turned into uh, to positive outcomes, that, that that's a yeah. good way to go. Well, it's, it's an interesting um, point. I think one of my uh, mentors, Dr. Rotundo, I remember he told me this a long time ago. He said, the, probably the most important thing that you could ever do is always keep the patient at the center of the equation. Yeah. And that really hit home with me because I think, you know, sometimes we get caught up in all these different things and that kind of can bring you back to baseline and yeah. remind you, like, here's what's important. It's not about yeah. you. It's not about the American College of Surgeons. It's not about Congress. Uh, and I think in trauma care, that's what that's the advantage we really have. Yeah. I think, and Mike has been a great example. I talking to Mike just before I came to this meeting. <laughs> He gave me a piece of advice. I guess he decided to not be too philosophical. And he said, uh, you know, look forward to seeing you in San Diego at the college meeting and so on. And remember, don't forget your medallion. 
And there, you know, there's the, a yeah. little medallion that, that you get as a past president. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Mike yesterday, yesterday, I guess, and I said, Mike, I appreciated your email, and by God, I went and got my medallion out and put it in my <laughs> suitcase so I didn't forget oh, it. Oh, that's great. That's when you're wonderful. president, you, you get a big medallion that you are supposed to wear around the world in your travel. And they say there's two things about this medallion. Number one, it is the original medallion from 1913. I happened to be president in 2013, so it was the 100th year. Wow. So it has great historical value. Don't lose it. And the second thing was always uh, take it out of your suitcase or wherever you're carrying it when you go through security because it will be, it will trigger the yeah, alarm. Yeah, So we were in, uh, my wife and I were in Heathrow on our way to uh, Edinburgh. And I, I dutifully put my medallion in the little dish because I kept it very separate. And it went through and we were, had very tight connection to Edinburgh. And I heard the security guy, we saw him holding up this medallion and he said, who does this belong to? <laughs> and I said that it was mine. And meanwhile, all these people gathered around to see, thinking, you know, it was some sort of a terrorist thing or something, I guess. And he said, does this say surgeon on it? And I said, yes. Although I thought it was in Latin, I don't know how he, but he recognized, he said, does that say surgeon? And I said, yes. And he said, are you a surgeon? And I said, yes. He said, would you mind having a look at my back? He said, I've been having this back pain and trying to get into the National Health Service for the last six months, and I oh can't get gosh. in. So my <laughs> wife is saying, Brent, Brent, we got it. You know, I finally retrieved my medallion and went on. And we were in Egypt later on in, in the year. And I was telling that story to the president of the Egyptian College of Surgeons, and he had such a great rebuttal. He said, you should have told the guy, yes, I'll be happy to look at your back, but I'll have to run you through x-ray first. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I would have thought oh, of that. Oh, that's great. Well, Dr. Eastman, you know, we can't uh, begin to thank you enough for taking the time to do this. This has really been uh, very special, and I think the experiences that you've imparted on us, I hope that, you know, all of us, not only through the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, but also... Uh, across the community uh, that care for injured patients can learn from this and apply it as we move forward. So thank you very much. My really, pleasure. Really appreciate it. I applaud it. what you're doing. Thank you for including me. I am Joseph Sacrin, and you are just listening to East Storycast, history of trauma and emergency surgery told by the people who were there.